Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome to week three of Women in Horror Month. I'll start you off this week with, you guessed it, a reminder of our Changing Seasons Flash Fiction Contest. The entries have started to heat up, but we've got a couple of weeks left to go, and some very hungry readers still gnashing their teeth for more. So please, Before time gets too slim, slide up to that keyboard and let the inspiration flow. Up to 1,500 words of terror on the changing of the seasons. And if you need more details, talestoterrify.com slash flash contest has everything you need to know. And for this week, that's it. Time to hand you off to Meredith. Good evening, children of the night. Welcome to the third episode of 2023's Women in Horror Month. 
This year, it's my honor to introduce you to five writers making their terrifying horror novel debuts. So far, we've met two wonderfully wicked women. Let's see who else wants to leave a bloody handprint on the walls. This week's debuting author spotlight falls on Ai Ji Hung and her novel Ling Huen. Ai Ji Hung arrived in Canada at four years old, along with her parents, after emigrating from Fujian, China, city of Changle. She is an alumnus of the University of Toronto, St. George, the Humber School for Writers, mentors Nabin Ruthnam and Marina Endicott, and Gotham Writers Workshop. Ai is currently pursuing her master's in creative writing at the University of Edinburgh. She is a fiction editor at Orion's Belt, a member of the Horror Writers Association, the Science Fiction Writers Association, and Codex. As a Chinese-Canadian and immigrant writer, she desires to write fiction that mixes both literary and speculative elements while incorporating aspects of her cultural background and native landscape wherever she can. She likes to draw on East Asia mythology, legends, and folklore in her dark fantasy and horror writing. When she has free time, she enjoys reading works of all genres, but has a particular interest for the ones within the realms of dystopian, apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic, fantasy, sci-fi, horror, and dark fiction. You can usually find her hunched over her desk, munching on snacks that she shouldn't be eating, or drinking far too many bubble teas while insisting that watching movies and shows on Netflix is part of her research, or active procrastination, for her writing. Here's a little bit about Ai's debut, Ling Huwen, to be published in April 2023 by Dark Matter Inc. Follow Wenqi, Liam, and Mrs. in this modern gothic ghost story by Chinese-Canadian writer and immigrant Ai Jiung. Ling Huwen is set in the mysterious town of Home, a place where the dead live again as spirits conjured by the grief-sick population that refuses to let go. You can pre-order Ling Huwen at Dark Matter Magazine. Links will also be in the show notes. And remember that you can help aspiring ghouls like I not only by buying these books, but with reviews on Goodreads, Amazon, and wherever else you lurk. And now, I'll let Drew tell you where those blood-curdling screams are coming from. Thank you, Meredith. I have to admit, I'm a huge sucker for that unique style of terror inspired by the legends, mythology, and monsters of Asia. And I'm looking forward to checking out Ai Jiung's new book next month when it releases. It also just so happens she has a story on the slate with us for later in the year as well. So keep your ears peeled for that. But tonight, we have a pair of wicked tales by a couple of other female frighteners. Ready? Let's dive in. Our first story for the evening comes from Wendy Nickel. Wendy Nickel is a speculative fiction author with a degree in elementary education, a fondness for road trips, and a terrible habit of forgetting where she's left her cup of tea. Her short fiction has been published by Analog, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Nature, and elsewhere. Her time travel novella series, 
beginning with the continuum, is available from World Weaver Press. For more info, visit wendynickel.com. Link is in the show notes. Children of the Night, join me for Wendy Nichols' The Moody Rooms of Agatha Tate. First published in Nightscape Press's Knox Paradolia Anthology, October 2019. Agatha Tate lived alone in a house tucked away beneath a veil of willows. Then one day she died, and the house was alone. It looks ordinary from the outside. The sort of house your grandmother lived in when you were a child, right down to the faded blue shutters on each window, and the vines creeping up the trellises in the garden amidst the hum of bees. In the autumn afternoon, the willows sag with humidity and the weariness of having shaded this yard. This house, for oh so long. You've walked by, bicycled by, driven by this house every day of your life, but you've never stepped inside before, though you've often mused on what it would be like, what sort of secrets you'd find there. Agatha never was one for entertaining. Leaves crunch beneath your feet as you climb the porch, and the wood groans beneath your weight. There's a key somewhere. Someone told you. Was it Agatha? You don't recall the exact conversation, but somehow you know to twist the base of the planter on the porch, the planter that houses a black and twisted withered thing that might once have been a plant, but whatever it was, it ought to have been thrown out long ago. Out drops a key. So warped and weather-worn, you wonder if it really will permit you entrance, or if it will stubbornly stick in the lock and remain there, unmoving until the house, the neighbourhood, the world crumbles around it. It seems the sort of key that might. But you turn it in the lock, and the door swings open as if it were waiting for you. And perhaps it was. Perhaps it knew that someone would be coming for it, after they rolled Agatha's body away on the gurney with a cloth draped over her face. Perhaps it knew that someone was bound to come to put the old woman's affairs in order, to begin the scavenger hunt she left behind. A search for the things old women like her leave. Safe deposit box keys. Copies of her will. A notebook in spider-script writing that details the bills to be paid, the kin to be contacted, the hymns to be played at her funeral. You step inside. Stained glass sunlight slides its way into the foyer, dyeing the hardwood floors and the spiral staircase in bright reds and yellows. Dust dances before your face, drawing you forward like fairy lights on a forest path. This way, it says. This way. Obedient, you follow. Follow down the hallway, past faded portraits of Agatha Tate's ancestors, all bearing the prominent Tate nose. They stare at you from behind their gilded frames, scrutinising you and wondering why you, of all people, are here. You are not one of them. You don't know their history, though you get the impression that if you stared long enough into their ink-black eyes, 
they would tell you, whether you wanted to know or not. Didn't the townsfolk whisper about her great-grandfather's fortune, claiming it was ill-gotten, and really, how many vast fortunes weren't? Didn't they say that this very house was built on the land of others held sacred, despite all warnings and appeals? The corners sink into shadows so deep beyond the sunlight that any manner of creature could be hiding within them. Cats, you tell yourself. Old women like Agatha always keep cats, don't they? Step this way, urged the dust motes. And you do. Tea is laid out in the parlour, as though Agatha had been expecting guests that morning when her heart decided it had had enough of this world. Somewhere in another room, a clock chimes the hour. Two teacups sit with handles pointing outward and heavily steep liquid filled to the top. In the streaks of light streaming in between the willow-shaded windows, a wisp of steam rises from the rim. A trick of the light, no doubt. Though something stops you from testing that theory with a touch. A menagerie of chairs encircle the tea table, and on the edge of your perception you can almost hear them whispering. Sharing, now that Agatha is gone, the secrets the townsfolk whispered about throughout her life. The story of the tragic illness that took her mother. The annual tones of what a lonely girl she must be, locked up in that house all alone. The cautionary tale of the summer she was seen behaving badly with that boy from out of town. And its sequel, when she was sent away. She never was the same after that, they said. Although how anyone could tell the difference, you don't know, considering no one had ever really known her before. And how many people had truly known her after? beyond the rumours and speculation and the tales children whisper on nights like tonight, when the moon is full. Her photograph sits on the mantle above the hearth, a black and white image of a woman your age, staring with eyes wide as if in fear of whoever, or whatever, was behind the camera. You fight the urge to glance over your shoulder, and beside that lies a bit of floral lace, carefully constructed from a lock of hair the wrong colour to belong to Agatha, even back then. It's silver soft and fine as a child's, and it sends a shiver down your spine when you touch it. Outside, a cloud shifts, pouring pools of light through the room and stirring up the dust once more. You won't find what you're looking for here, so you allow it to lead you on. As you enter the dining room, an imposing clock in the corner marks the passing of the hour, and the meagre light darts from crystal to crystal. Chandelier to wine glass to clock face to plate, like skittish forest children sprinting between trees. A taxidermied crow has made its perch atop a curio cabinet, and behind the glass you find a tiny museum of antiques, pocket knives with bloodied handles, books with bullet holes torn through, and a set of heavy black instruments whose uses you don't care to question or consider. One entire shelf is lined with half-filled bottles and canisters engraved with skulls and crossbones, and others filled with books with pages leathery and yellow. You've always heard that Agatha was a collector, though of what no one ever seemed quite sure. She'd certainly never attended the local craft fairs, nor been seen wandering through the antique mall on Main. Yet the truck of the parcel delivery service could often be seen stopped before her house leaving its cardboard-shrouded offerings upon the altar of her doorstep. Now you sift through her collection, paging through the autumn-leaf papers of her shelves and lifting the lids of her boxes. Inside are jars of herbs, 
vials of tinctures, and a half-dozen dry human skulls. In a corner of the cabinet, you find a page marked, For Summoning, along with a bowl of burnt remains that still yield the scent of cardamom. How did you get roped into this task, anyhow? You wonder, as you stuff the bones back in their cardboard coffins. You ought to have made excuses. You ought to simply have said no. You ought not to let people push you around so much, tell you what to do, manipulate you, so you don't end up in situations like this, alone in this strange house of an even stranger woman, sifting through her strange possessions to unearth her story. But that's really what it is, you know, the reason you're here. The curiosity squeezes its way into your grey matter each time her name is mentioned, each time you pass her house. With each peculiarity her rooms offer up, it burrows in there, amid the sparks of neural pathways, wrapping itself in the rumours and the secrets and the things that don't add up. You never could resist a mystery, could you? Old Grandfather Clock chides you with another passing hour, taking you aback at the rapid flight of time. Outside, the sky has turned the deep red of wine, the same hue as the drink in the nearest glass. A glass which, you are certain, nearly certain, was empty when you arrived. Had you poured one in your absent-mindedness, in the throes of your investigation? But where, then, was the rest of the bottle? It's late. You promise yourself you'll return tomorrow, in the morning, when the sun is shining and you've had enough sleep to hold your imagination in check. When you can remember what you've come here for, and why without getting caught up in the mood. The crow's black-bead eyes sparkle in amusement as you leave. The door no longer leads to the parlour. It must have before, for it's the only door from the dining room, but now, instead of teacups and circling chairs and the lock of baby-soft hair, you've stepped into a room you've never seen before, and despite looking every bit an ordinary bedroom, it sends your heart racing, your breath ragged, as if you've just climbed a dozen stairs. And maybe you have. For the staircase is there behind you, over your shoulder, just beyond the doorframe through which you stepped. See? You consider retreat, but before you stands a writing desk. And it seems a shame to leave your task uncompleted, only to have to be taken up another day. What more logical place to lay out one's affairs than here, where paper and ink are at hand? The curtains on the four-poster bed flutter as you pass, and you curse the draftiness of old houses. The final rays of daylight fight their way through willow leaves and curtains, desaturating the room into green greys, but the lamp on the desk only mocks you, refusing to illuminate no matter how adamantly you flick the switch. And there you find it, bound in twine and clearly marked, Agatha's final will and testament. You ought to bring it to be properly filed and executed and leave the rest to the law, but did you really think you'd be able to hand it over and forget about it? That the curiosity which dragged you here would let you leave her story unresolved? But no, you can't read it now. Not here at the desk, where the light is so low. Perhaps at the window. Moonlight pours through the glass and rain patters against the panes. It's a rattling, unsettling pattern that sets your teeth on edge 
as you lean against the ledge and slip your fingers beneath the envelope seal. Out pours Agatha's will, written neatly in Agatha's hand, with Agatha's signature winding across the bottom. You touch the page, and it's the closest you've been to her. Closest you'll ever be to the mysterious woman who has, in death, drawn you in. And there, on the page, you find the name of her heir. The baby she bore the summer she disappeared, whose newborn curl she clipped and kept, a memento of the child she couldn't raise. The child whom she, through who knows what dark witchcraft and trickery, has now summoned here to claim what's theirs by right. Trace the letters. Follow their lines up and down and around and across. They're the first letters your mother taught you to write, aren't they? That is, the first letters taught you by the woman you thought was your mother. Now you know the truth. But that can't be right, can it? Surely you'd have known. Surely you'd have been told. You search for your phone, but there's no signal here. Is that really so big a surprise? No. You'll have to wait till you're in your car, tucked away in the safety of the familiarity, away from the wallpaper roses that glare like eyeballs in the darkness. You'll wait till you're away from this place, and then you'll call. You'll find out. You'll set the record straight. Whatever it is. With Agatha's will in hand, you rush to the stairs, but the house has already staked its claim on you. It belongs to you, and you to it. It says so on the paper in your hand, and it's not prepared to give you up again. The carpeting buckles beneath your feet, and the handrail fails to catch you. You tumble, head first, down the curving staircase, striking head and shoulder and knee, the steps, the wallpaper rose eyes, the glimmering chandeliers create a kaleidoscope as you somersault. Head, feet, head, feet. Colours blur and contract into darkness until, when you finally come to a rest on your back, your body groaning in pain, everything is black, and you are nowhere at all. You might be in the cellar, you decide. But overhead are streaks that run like the edges of floorboards across the ceiling softly glowing with meagre moonlight that trickles down and illuminates the dancing dust motes. You just need a moment for your eyes to adjust and your pulse to return to normal. Every story needs a resolution, and this one is fast approaching. You just need to gather your strength. Once you do, you'll climb the stairs and leave through the first door you find, out into the rain-drenched night, and you'll vow never to return here again, no matter what the whispered mysteries no matter the curiosity still tickling your head. From here on out, you'll drive out of the way to avoid this block, to avoid the dormers and the windows and the faded blue shutters, to try to drive it from your mind. And the will? Well, if the house is yours as it claims it is, you'll try to sell it quickly, for cheaper than it's worth, for you know enough to know you want nothing to do with the corridor full of ancestors or the tiny reliquary. You've had quite enough of Agatha's story now, haven't you? All you wanted was to satisfy your curiosity with an atmospheric tale. All you wanted was a story to pass the time, about a woman, her house, and the rooms within. How were you to know it would land you here, locked somewhere in the dark, with rats scuttling around and no way out as the house settles its bones overhead? 
You don't even know a woman named Agatha Tate, do you? And you've never seen a house or a garden like hers. Those parts were all lies. No one ever asked you to find her will, either. You entered this story of your own volition. For curiosity is a powerful force, one which has drawn you, yes, you, into this tale. And it will hold you when all the words are gone, though your eyes may look elsewhere and your hands may close the page and your feet may walk away to go about your life. Your mind knows. It sees your name, plain as day, written in ink on Agatha's will. It sees the house which belongs to you, to which you now belong. Certainly, you may try to forget, as your years hurry past on this earth, but no matter where you may wander, your mind will return you. It may be in the dead of night, it may be in your dreams, it may be when your mind wanders between tasks, but again and again you'll startle to find yourself thinking of that place, imagining yourself still lying, sore and weary, in that cold and dark cellar, with those curious rooms above. And you'll know then that you have no choice but to accept the inheritance of Agatha Tate. That was Wendy Nichols' The Moody Rooms of Agatha Tate, as read by Georgia Cook. Georgia Cook is an illustrator and writer from London. She has experience on both sides of the recording booth, and in addition to Tales to Terrify, has contributed to such podcasts as The Other Stories and The Night's End, as both a narrator and writer. She can be found on Twitter at GeorgiaCooked, and on her website at georgiacookwriter.com. Thank you, Georgia. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Our second tale tonight comes from Livia E. D'Souza. Livia E. D'Souza lives in Connecticut, where she writes dark fiction. Her work has previously appeared in Literally Stories. Listen with me, children of the night, to Livia E. D'Souza's In My Home, a Tales to Terrify original. They come every evening. Sometimes there are only two. Sometimes as many as seven. No matter the number, they are always untouchable. As am I. I know why they are here. And I know why I am here. The surgeons may be able to take away transient details of a life lived, those more menial social identifiers but they cannot excise what the mind considers simple facts. I am locked in a cabin outside of the city, and there is nothing outside of the city. I am here because I represent some obstacle to the desired progression of society. It is a society I understand well, but cannot picture in my mind. I do not know specifically which disturbance I represent, but the possibilities are nearly endless. My confinement is scheduled to continue for the duration of my lifetime. I know why they are here, why they come every evening. They are here because the first generation of exiles was placed in these cabins in complete isolation, a convenient, if cruel, solution. In time... The onset of madness made their continued self-care unpragmatic. I know what happened to the ones driven insane by the isolation, but this I choose to forget. For now, it is not helpful to remember. It's a beautiful day, is it not? One of them says. A woman, she appears to be in her mid-twenties with unremarkable features and short hair. A man across the room nods, but this is coincidental. Their communication never truly synchronizes. I do not speak to them, because there is no need. 
They come every evening and leave when I go to bed. If I look closely enough, I can see right through them. I am not one to go insane. I am convinced that I lack this predisposition, but am unsure of why. Perhaps this too was a simple fact. I do not know how I acted or failed to act to end up here, but I am here for a reason. It is warm too, is it not? The short-haired woman is speaking again. It was my cat, a different woman interrupts, while two others wander around the cabin. The walls are made of concrete, but painted to look like wood. They are cold and rough to the touch. Once, I chipped some paint away with my fingernail, but I regretted it almost immediately. I can still see the exposed gray spot if I look at the wall behind my head. Now, I avoid looking at the wall behind my bed. There is one door leading to a locked vestibule, where my food is left once a day. I am diligent about returning my empty tray. I imagine there are some not as considerate as I am. I claim this as a source of pride, though it is built on a tenuous foundation. After all, I only imagine the others to be lax. I tried naming the human projections once, but they never stay long enough to make it worth the effort. I was surprised to find that it actually hurt me to see them replaced the next week. I eat dinner at the small table in silence. My kitchen is a sink, a table, and a cabinet. It is a shallow motif of the prototypical home, something modest with which to weigh down a rest of psyche. There is a small countertop, but it is only decorative, as my food is prepared for me. There is another remark from the short-haired woman. This time the interruption comes too late. One man sits in a chair in the corner. His eyes are gritty and bloodshot, and he sports an unkempt beard. Another man mills around the room as though admiring a series of paintings. He nods at one and lightly touches his chin. My walls are bare. I finish dinner and carry the empty tray to the front door. The vestibule is relatively small, only five feet long and three feet wide. I set the tray on the floor and return to the cabin. The outer door must be locked because my door is open. No matter the time, I can always tell when my food is dropped off. The mechanical noise of the bolt is loud enough to fill the cabin. Every day, the sound makes me abruptly aware of my empty stomach as I wait patiently for my door to unlock again. I prepare for bed and turn off the lights. Though I have tried to dry my hair with a towel, it is still wet. I hate the feeling of a damp pillowcase clinging to my neck, but I only wash at night. This is my habit. One by one, my nightly visitors dissolve. The red-tinged electric strip of light above my bed displays the empty space they leave behind. The room readily swells at the onset of their absence. 
The man in the corner is the last to go. His projection reflects the red light in two glassy points. I close my eyes and wait for him to fade away. I have grown accustomed to falling asleep with the soft red light bleeding through my eyelids. Sometimes I wonder if it colors my dreams, but I can never remember them anyway. I wonder if I dream at all. I think it is a simple fact that every human dreams at night, but I am not sure. Perhaps I should be concerned that every night I succumb to an empty black abyss. I hear a soft thud. It seems nearby, as my heartbeat plays the ventriloquist with its rhythm. At this time of night, any sound I hear comes from within my own body. The concrete cabin allows no auditory stimulation apart from those of the projections, my own being, and the mechanical bolt. I settle my body back into the mattress. I can hear my shoulder click. In this isolation, every breath is amplified tenfold. The soft thud comes again, yet I have still felt nothing. I open my eyes, and the man from the chair is standing beside my bed. He looks at me directly, as though seeing me. I wrap the blanket tighter around my body, tucking the edge around my throat. I say nothing. He reaches toward the wall and switches on the overhead lights. He is not one of my nightly visitors. I do not know who he is. Do you have any food? He asks. I nod. Where? I point to the cabinet in the kitchen. Any non-perishables that I do not eat over the course of the day, I store for later. There are some sweets and a few bars of something soft and chalky. I hate the aggressively artificial flavor of the bars, so these last longer. He has his back to me as he rifles through the cabinet. He throws a few things on the table and pours himself a glass of water in my glass. Why are you here? He asks. The specifics of my life have been ripped from my mind. I only remember simple facts. He looks over his shoulder. You, he repeats. Why are you here? I don't know, I say. It is for the continued health of our society. It has been years since I have spoken and my voice cracks on those exact words which incessantly repeat in my head. They never know, do they? He says to himself. And I'm not sure it's an our society for people like us anymore. He sits down and begins eating one of the bars. Do you know where you are? He asks. I sit up now wrapping the blanket around my shoulders. I pull it as tight as I can and feel an increasing sense of comfort, though I cannot breathe as deeply. Far away, I say. He laughs, and his eyes crinkle at the outer corners. <laughs> You've got that right. 
This cabin is about as far away as it gets. That's why I'm here. See, I'm not like you. I know who I am, and I know what I've done. I just need to hide out here for a few days, then I'll be in the clear. How did you get in? I asked. Through the front door? He finishes the bar and sticks the wrapper in the empty glass. In fact, as a favor, I'll help you get out. In two days, we'll both have true freedom. Do you know who I am? I ask. He shakes his head. You must be one of the bad ones, though, because you're in the last row of cabins. The more run-of-the-mill exiles are in the first couple rows. He lays down on the couch and kicks off his shoes before peeling off his socks. He folds the square pillow under his snack. You'll come with me and you'll see. There's a whole world out there, beyond the city and beyond these cabins. Once you get out into the wilderness, they stop chasing you. It costs too much to be convenient. And if there's only one thing they care about, it's that. I usually wash my drinking glass myself, but the soap I have is weak. I step out and place the glass and empty wrapper next to my tray before quickly slipping back behind the front door. I don't like spending too much time in the vestibule. It is always a few degrees warmer or cooler than the cabin. The temperature in the cabin never changes. You come from the city? I ask turning back to the intruder. Doesn't everybody? I nod. That's another one of those simple facts. You're not so dumb after all. You people really have it cleaned out, he says, pointing at his own temple. You're only the third one I've met so far. I had to hide out in cabins on my way from the city. The first one, I couldn't tell why she was there. I made up some story about how she had accidentally let someone drown. She was so passive, just watched the human projections and never said a word. It was a miracle she managed to feed herself. I took half the food right off her plate, and she didn't even glance in my direction. It gave me chills. You can bet I got out of there the minute I thought it was safe. The man takes off his belt and drapes it over the back of the couch. He untucks his shirt and loosens a few buttons. And the second one? I ask. A slight smile tugs at his lips. Apparently, he is happy to have a participating audience. The second. Well, he was a little more active than the first, but he adapted to the cabin in the worst way. He spoke to the projections, he spoke to me, and he spoke to the empty spaces between us. I would know why he was there, but nothing made any sense. They were words, all right, but it was like someone shredded a dictionary. I'd give almost anything to know what he was like before his confinement, but that's just my own curiosity. How long did you stay there? I asked. Only two nights. That was in the seventh row. I crossed the final three in one day, which brings me here. 
It's easy to see how the gauntlet of cabins keeps anyone from leaving the city. There's honestly nowhere to hide but the homes of the city's forgotten and damned. I want to ask more questions, but he rolls to face the couch. I return to my bed and switch out the overhead lights. He sleeps most of the day. The distance between the rows of cabins must be greater than I had imagined. I think the exact placement of the cabins is not common knowledge. There are ten rows total, and now I know I am in the tenth. It should frighten me that I have been placed in the tenth. I hear the bolt lock and wait until I hear it unlock less than a minute later before opening the door. The day's food and a clean glass are waiting on a fresh tray. I immediately go to the kitchen faucet for a drink. I had taken a little water from my palm that morning, but I am still thirsty. What time is it? He asks. The sound of another voice this early in the day startles me, and I touch my chest. There is the feeling of something alive within me, a prickling that runs from my throat to my core. It is the same lurking sensation that has permeated my body ever since my mind became consumed by a single intention, and this excitement resurfaces every time I think about the task I shall soon perform. Four o'clock, I say quietly. What time do the projections show up here? In an hour. Is it different in the other cabins? He nods. The second cabin. They were there all day. In the first, about twelve hours. Here it's only about two hours, I say. Guess you don't need them that bad. You think that's it? I ask. He shrugs and rubs his eyes. Who knows? Do you think you'd have lost it without them? Like the first generation? Yeah, like them, he says. No. I don't need the projections at all. Well, you'll be seeing other people soon enough. Real people. Not that imitation freak show, he says. He stretches and walks to the kitchen cabinet, where he retrieves another of the chalky bars. He opens it and devours the soft mass in three bites. He finishes what's left of my water and shoves the bar's wrapper into the empty glass. My mind has become consumed by this single intention and a sudden heat fills my blood. I close the distance between us faster than I would have thought possible. I knock him into the counter, pull him up, and strike him again. He falls backward with his ribs against the table leg, and my glass rolls to the floor, shattering. I grab a shard of glass and cut him twice, once in the neck and once in the shoulder. I know I've hit an artery because the blood comes out and pulses, in symphony with a panicked beating of his heart. Perhaps the precise, tactile details of bloodshed are common knowledge, 
and the overwhelming sensory familiarity of my own fist tightening around another's blood-slickened throat is a simple fact. I may not know who I am, but I know the exact moment he will stop moving beneath my knee, stop struggling against an already fatal wound. When he is finally still, I know how careful I must be to avoid slipping in the spreading crimson pool. I do my best to clean the cabin, but my soap is weak. I make only little progress. I drag the body to outside the front door and into the vestibule. I place his belongings beside him, along with all the broken glass I have managed to collect in my recklessly damaged hands. I return to the safety of the cabin and almost enjoy closing my door on the grisly sight. Today, the vestibule is a few degrees warmer than the cabin, and even this small difference makes me profoundly uneasy within myself. I do not want to leave my home. I also know the waiting. As the room fills with human projections, I sit on the couch and do nothing at all. They move and converse, their ephemeral feet tracing the fresh stains I have been unable to scrub away. They converse disjointedly and only accidentally look in my direction. I do not move a muscle. Finally, they are gone, and I do not sleep. I leave my dinner on the table, untouched. I am nervous, afraid I will be taken from my cabin. I wait hours, until finally I hear the mechanical bolt lock. This time is different. I do not hear my door unlock until two hours later. When I open the door and enter the vestibule, I find the day's food, a new glass, and fresh cleaning supplies. That was Livia E. D'Souza's In My Home, as read by Crystal Hammond. Crystal Hammond is a narrator-slash-writer, cancer survivor, and non-binary queer human. They grew up in rural North Carolina, nurtured by a steady diet of local Blackbeard legends and Confederate ghost stories. These nuggets of folktale and myth fostered a lifelong love of storytelling and all the drama that goes with it. They also have a master's degree in biological anthropology and adore ugly cats. Feel free to check out their narration website at crystalhammond.com or find them on Twitter at the KM Hammond. Thank you, Crystal. Well... Children of the night, the hour is late, 
and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Amanda Carrillo, Amanda Gottfried, Kathy Robinson, Lessel Baxter, Orion D. Hegra, and Paul Belcher, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Why not share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch? TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we invite the creature under the bed out for more Tales to Terrify. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.